a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you again for your word. We thank you, God, for not being a silent God, but a God who speaks and a God who, when he speaks, transforms his people. Accomplish that in us this day by the power of your spirit and in the name, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. During the last few chapters of John's gospel, over the last several weeks, Jesus has been unloading right at the feet of the disciples, unloading a dump truck of wonderful and disappointing news. But there's one thing that Jesus hasn't dealt with yet. There's an immediate crisis that he's not addressed with his men. Today's passage is about that immediate crisis. But first, let's review what Jesus has been teaching us. Let's remember where we are in the story in the evening of Maundy Thursday, the evening before the crucifixion. He's told them that he's leaving. He's going back to heaven, back to his Father. He's spoken to them about the world's hatred of them. He's prepared them for persecution, for being thrown out of the synagogues, for being hated even by their own people. He's told them about the Holy Spirit who will come, who will come alongside them and help them. He's instructed them on, long, on the long-term implications of his departure. So the mission goes on, but he's leaving. What's that mean? Jesus wants to assure his 11 disciples that He's thought through all the contingencies. He's made plans for their spiritual well-being and 
for the success of that mission in his absence. And that's news to them that it's going to be in his absence. But his departure is for their good. He must go to prepare an eternal dwelling place for them through the cross. He must leave them so that the Holy Spirit will come to them. And they'll do even greater things, Jesus says, when that happens. Hard for them to imagine, but it's true. His departure will create even a new relationship between them and God. So everything's going to get better. The intimacy, the mission, the fruitfulness. After Jesus departs, after their Lord leaves them, these men will enjoy a spiritual intimacy with Jesus they've never had before. And as they remain in Him, abide in Him, they'll bear more fruit than they bore while Jesus was with them. It's true, these men are going to face opposition, affliction, torture, and martyrdom. After all, that's, that's what Jesus faced. And Jesus is calling them to take up their cross and to follow Him, even into suffering. But they won't do any of this alone. They'll be joined by the Holy Spirit who will testify to Jesus through them, who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through them. So that's the long-range vision that Jesus is giving His disciples. That's, it's, it's the long-range vision that He's casting for them. Now, we know that the disciples didn't grasp all of this, maybe even much of it at all, but Jesus is planting seeds that will sprout up later. And those are some of the major themes going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14. The teaching of Jesus in these last few chapters has been large scale, long term, sweeping, covering redemptive history, having application for the church, not just the disciples. It's been jam-packed with spiritual and redemptive historical truths that apply today as they did then in most cases, in many ways. But there's still one thing Jesus hasn't dealt with. There's an immediate crisis that he hasn't addressed with his men. That crisis is the cross. In particular, the three days that follow the cross. For three days, Jesus will be dead. The the resurrection will still be unbelieved. The Holy Spirit will still be unsent. The Spirit of truth is coming, but first the cross. Their successful mission to the world is coming, but first the cross. Faithful Christian living, fruitful Christian living is coming, but first the cross. More revelation is coming, but first the cross. More spiritual intimacy with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit is coming, but first, the cross. So now Jesus turns his attention to the cross. Having covered everything else, he turns his attention to the cross. Not to talk about its atoning effect, important though that is. Not to talk about his own suffering. Not to talk about its centrality in salvation History, all that gets covered in due time, but specifically to talk about its spiritual and emotional effect 
on his followers, on these men. It's a very specific text with specific application in its historical context. He turns, he turns his attention to the cross to talk about it from the perspective of his now 11 disciples who will be facing profound confusion, profound heartache in the, ne- in the next few days. Jesus says in verse 16, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now Jesus isn't speaking plainly here. And I know that because he says so himself. Real quick, look down in verse 25. Jesus says there that he's been speaking in figurative language. Now that doesn't mean he's speaking in figures of speech or metaphors He's simply acknowledging that many of his sayings are cryptic or enigmatic. They're they're difficult to grasp, grasp, obscure, in in large part because they're not ready, of course. He can only tell them what they're ready to hear. And even that, they're not fully ready yet. But he acknowledges later on that he's going to speak plainly. Verse 25 says later on, and in in Luke's gospel we get... uh, we get an indication of when that is. It's after the resurrection. Jesus begins speaking plainly about how the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection on the third day. So we have an advantage that the disciples didn't have in that moment, on that Thursday night. We get to read verse 16 and the following, uh, the rest of the passage, from this side of the cross, from this side of, of, the, of Calvary and the death and resurrection of Jesus. To us, what Jesus says is plain, or it should be. But it wasn't to them. So they begin asking, they begin talking among themselves, asking questions. Verse 17. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father... They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's saying. Verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I've said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? So the disciples are confused, especially about that new little phrase, a little while. What's it mean? And some commentators remain similarly confused. They, they wonder, is Jesus talking about the period between his departure and his second coming? Or maybe is Jesus talking about the time between his departure and the giving of the Holy Spirit? But rather than, rather than complicating the text unnecessarily, this is one of those instances where we should just apply Occam's razor. The simplest interpretation is also the one that the only one that fits with all the data. Jesus is referring to his death on the cross and his return to them a little while, in a little while, by way of resurrection, at which point he will ascend to the Father, coming and going. Now, the phrase a little while describes the three days, the short 
time during which Jesus was dead and buried. And 20, verse 20 confirms that this is the only possible interpretation. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The picture of the disciples weeping and mourning while the world rejoices, so those two things going on at the same time, that only fits the period during which Jesus is in the grave. Because after the resurrection, the disciples were no longer weeping and mourning and lamenting. John 20 says that when the resurrection happened, when, when, when the resurrected Christ appeared to these men, to the disciples, and showed him his hands and his feet, uh, his hands and his side, rather, they were overjoyed, the text says. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That was when their weeping and mourning and sorrow came to an end, or better, transformed into joy. After all, what did Jesus promise earlier that evening, back in chapter 15, verse 11? These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This fullness of joy belonged to the 11 disciples, starting on the first Easter Sunday. It was fitting for Jesus to bring his discourse to a close here as we near the end of chapter 16 by focusing on the crisis of the cross. Apart from the priestly prayer in chapter 17, the passion and death of Christ are the next events to ensue. As we examine how Jesus responds to the disciples in this moment, we need to take care to preserve this, the, the historical uniqueness of the disciples' confusion. Their grief is far from reaching its climax. It's just getting started. They're, they're confused, but they're not yet in tears. The, threat, the threatened de- departure of Jesus is still only a threat It generates confusion, which will give birth to grief. And this grief will metamorphosize into deep joy. In verse 20, Jesus begins to respond to their questions. But rather than answering their question, he answers their need, as he often does. That's the first observation. Jesus answers their need rather than their question. We're going to have four observations, four points from the rest of this text. And the first one is that Jesus answers their need rather than their question. Their question had to do with that, the meaning of that phrase that they got hung up on a little while. And this, this phrase, interesting enough, appears seven times in just uh, four verses, 16 to 19, we get the sense that they're obsessing over the meaning of these words, this new phrase that Jesus introduced. Maybe they've never heard him use it before. But Jesus knows that their deeper concern is his departure, not the meaning of a phrase. They're upset and confused 
But more than that, they're unprepared spiritually and emotionally for the acute grief that will inundate their hearts in just a few hours, in less than 24 hours. Jesus forces them to look squarely in the face of their impending grief, no doubt. He doesn't, he doesn't shy away from that at all. But he also, and more importantly, assures them that the end result is an abundance of joy, a fullness of joy. You will be sorrowful, Jesus says, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So with this promise in their hearts, the coming sorrow will, we could say it'll pummel them, but it won't pulverize them. And this promise is not so much a balm as it is a ballast. It's, it's ballast for their souls. It'll stabilize them during the dark days ahead. And it'll stabilize them by giving them a bigger perspective, the perspective of faith. So it'll, it'll give them ballast. Sometimes, sometimes Jesus answers not our questions, but our needs, doesn't he? We come to him with our questions, but he addresses our needs. Our questions, the questions that we bring to God, those questions represent perceived needs, needs that we feel, that we think we have, but Jesus always knows our actual needs. And sometimes Jesus answers our real needs by providing a broader perspective. That's why we should always be in our Bibles because Jesus, God is always giving us a broader perspective, a biblical perspective, the perspective of faith to address our needs. And that's what he does here. He just gives them a broader perspective. Jesus doesn't answer all the questions you're obsessed about, but he does something far greater. In the midst of your sorrows, in the midst of your uncertainties, in the midst of your confusion, he assures, he assures you that joy awaits you on the other side of the difficulty. He helps you imitate the faith of Abraham. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, having this promise in your possession is far better than getting answers to all your little questions that you obsess about. A few verses later it says, and this is Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16, these all died in faith. Remember, Hebrews 11 is the, the hall of faith, some call it. It's the long chapter about all the faithful Old Testament believers. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Two or three weeks ago, I read from Hebrews 13, a couple chapters later, verse 14, which says, Here, here on earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And we know that from the book of Revelation, that city is to come from heaven when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are united and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Like Abraham, though, we're strangers and exiles on the earth. We, we seek, if we have Abraham's faith, we seek a homeland. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, the city that God has prepared for us, the city that Jesus has prepared for us through the cross. That's the perspective of faith. Excuse me. That's the perspective of faith. And armed with that faith, not a a making of our own kind of faith, but a biblical faith, the faith that God gives, armed with that faith, we discover again and again as we come into contact with God, as we come into contact with His Word, as we keep in step with His Spirit, we find again and again that while weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. Verse 20 also reminds us that some experiences of joy only come on the other side of sorrow. There are some joys that only come On the other side of sorrow, sorrow produces certain kinds of rejoicing that would never exist apart from the grief that preceded it. Sometimes I wonder, this is just my opinion, sometimes I wonder if that's part of why God ordained a story that involves pain, sorrow, sin, so that certain joys could be experienced. We know from Romans 9 that His his mercy is made known because of the way he ordained things in a way that it wouldn't otherwise, well, perhaps certain joys are made known to us because of the way he has orchestrated history, which includes sorrow. Some of life's greatest joys rise from the ashes of all-consuming sorrow. The joy of Resurrection Sunday is impossible apart from the grief of Good Friday. The sorrow of the disciples must take place if the joy is to come. The sorrow of his death is also necessary because his death is the only way mankind mankind can be saved. Without Christ's death, there's no eternal life. Without the cross, there is no Easter. There is no hope. There is no salvation. So Jesus answers our needs rather than our questions. That's the first Point, the first observation. And he does this by pointing us to the joy that comes on the other side, the joy that comes in the morning, on the other side of the weeping, the promise of his word, the promises, plural, of his word provide the perspective of faith. The second observation, also from verse 20, is that the disciples' sorrow is not displaced by joy. Rather, their sorrow is turned into Joy, And that's an important distinction to think about. It's a metamorphosis. The illustration that Jesus uses in verse 21, 
makes the same point. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow. Why? Because her hour has come. And it's the hour of pain and agony and anguish. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world, has been born into the world. If you've ever had the the privilege of, of... Watching a woman give birth, as I have had eight times, and Lord willing, a ninth time in September. One of the beautiful things about this event is witnessing the grief of labor transform into the joy of bringing a human being into the world. It's a wonderful sight. There's, this, there's an organic connection between the sorrow of labor and the joy of having giving, given birth. I haven't experienced it, but I've seen it. The joy would not be what it is without the sorrow that preceded it. The, the thing that creates the woman's sorrow, anguish, Jesus says, which is giving birth, the thing that that creates her sorrow, giving birth, is the very, very thing, the very same thing that eventually generates her joy. The same is true for disciples of Jesus, particularly the 11 disciples on the first Maundy Thursday. The things that create their sorrow, the thing that creates their sorrow, the cross, is the very thing that generates their joy later. And there's continuity between the sorrow and the joy, the same way there's continuity between a a caterpillar and a butterfly. The caterpillar doesn't, it it isn't displaced by the butterfly. So, you know, caterpillars, you know, moves over and the butterfly comes in and replaces. It's not displaced by the butterfly. Rather, the caterpillar is turned into a butterfly The organic relationship between the sorrow and joy of the disciples is what gives stability and longevity to their joy. This perspective will help you, as it helped them, to endure the Lord's gracious chastening. Children, it will help you endure your parents' gracious discipline. Because it works the same way. When a father disciplines his child, the child chafes under it. At the the time of administration, the child's heart is not filled with joy. But one day, if the discipling is done and received in faith, the child will one day look back on the discipline with gratitude and joy. It will have transformed Hebrews 12.11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The sorrow that God has in store for his sons and daughters, for you and me, is for their good, for our good, for your good. It's how he trains us. His chastening is for your good. It's how he disciples you. And even though God's chastening doesn't seem joyful at the time, 
at the time of the chastening, it actually is, if you think about it from one angle, it actually is full of joy, even in that moment. God's discipline is full of joy the same way a caterpillar is, is full of a butterfly somehow. Your losses and griefs, though painful in the moment, generate spiritual growth and stable joy in your life. And so this kind of joy that's the result of sorrow is is a joy, again, that brings ballast to your soul. Your sorrow is not displaced by joy. Rather, your sorrow by faith, is turned into joy. And this is a supernatural process that happens to you by God's grace and through your faith that he gives to you. So that's the second observation. Your sorrow is not displaced by joy, but turned into joy. The third observation is that the disciples' resurrection joy cannot be taken away from them. The disciples' resurrection joy cannot be taken from them. Look at verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. The joy that Jesus gives can never be snatched away. No one, Jesus says, can take it away. Now, I want you to think, can you think of anything else in your life that has the same kind of guarantee. Any, anything else that carries the same promise with it. Fire or thieves can take away your possessions. Disease or an accident can take away your health. Death can take away loved ones. And friends, slander can take away your reputation. Oppression can take away your civil liberties. What about your joy? What can take it away? It often seems as though circumstances or people or both have that power to strip you of your joy, doesn't it? But Jesus promises that the joy he gives can't be taken away from you at all, no matter what. Now, if that doesn't seem right to you, if that doesn't resonate with your experience, if circumstances and people regularly get the best of you and your joy, then the problem is not with the joy that Jesus gives you. The problem is that you've substituted real joy with a phony, which is what we we tend to do all the time, especially because we live in abundance and we have uh, increasing opportunities to do that. In our abundance and in our luxury and our comfort, we have a hard time sometimes finding joy, ironically. When your joy is something other than Jesus... If it's dependent on good relationships or a good job or interesting hobbies or comfort or a retirement plan or your sense of personal fulfillment in life or at your job or in your family, 
in your marriage, then it can and will be taken away from you regularly. Not just maybe, but it will, and it will happen regularly. Placing your joy in things like friendships, exciting events, safety, health, security, freedom, and family is like putting your life savings in a shoebox, leaving it unattended in a high crime district, and sticking a note on it that implores people not to take it because, because it belongs to you. Only a fool would do such a thing and think that it would work, right? How often are we fools with the treasure that Jesus has given us? On the other hand, if your joy is in Jesus, you, you can trade your shoebox for Fort Knox. If your joy comes from your union with Jesus and his promises to you, then what leverage does anyone have? What leverage does the devil have? What leverage does any person have with you? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. One theologian says this, I suppose the devil could attempt to steal the apostles' joy by having them betrayed by a close friend. Or maybe he could try relentless persecution by those who claim to follow God. But the disciples know these assaults will be ineffective. They're going to be ineffective because Jesus already took those attacks and not just defeated them, but used them to usher in this joy. Jesus didn't only conquer betrayal and persecution, he turned them into the agents that brought about the disciples' joy. And of course, the ultimate fear, the ultimate weapon, the ultimate Joy stealer is death, but Jesus disarmed death. Jesus conquered every enemy. If we find our joy in him, we have nothing to fear. Our joy is impervious to all attacks leveled against us. Jesus' resurrection guarantees he can never die again, and those who follow him will never experience separation from him in death. We may leave our physical bodies, but Jesus will never leave us. End quote. So your resurrection joy, Jesus says, cannot be taken away from you. That's the third observation. The fourth and final observation is that the cross of Christ will transform the disciples' prayers, which will lead to greater joy. So the cross of Christ will transform the disciples' prayers, which will lead to greater joy. Let's read verses 23 and 24. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So fellowship with God not only produces lasting joy. It also produces powerful praying in the name of Jesus. These two verses, you will have noticed, contain four instances of a verb that in English is translated means ask, right? 
So there are two, you, you can see in your Bibles, there, there are two in verse 23, two in verse 24. But what's interesting is that the first inst- instance of ask in verse 23 is a different Greek verb from the other three instances. So, so look in your Bible at that first sentence in verse 23. Jesus says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. And the word ask here is different from the other three, and it carries more the idea, at least in classical Greek, it carried, in fact, in classical Greek, it only carried the idea of asking about something or asking for information. So you're curious, you ask a question, and it kind of, it describes the sort of questions that the disciples are fond of asking Jesus. Now, in in later Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, this, this verb meant that, but it also started to mean what these other three verbs mean. So it kind of became more synonymous with the other three verbs in this text. But it still had the, so about half the time it meant the other one too. So it was a transformation there of what it meant. But what Jesus seems to be doing, what John seems to be doing here and Jesus as well, his words, is making this distinction between the, the sort of praying or asking that the disciples did before the cross and what they will do after the cross. So it describes the, that first verb describes the questions that the disciples were always asking Jesus. And the point here is that after Jesus rises from the dead and breathes the Spirit on them, the disciples won't be asking the same kind of questions they asked Jesus during his earthly ministry. They won't be obsessed with questions about the meaning of a little while. They won't be obsessed with questions about the timing of the second coming. They won't be obsessed with questions about who's going to rule on his right hand and on his left. Instead, they'll be praying to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. They'll be asking new and better questions. And as these prayers are answered, their joy will be filled up and overflowing. The disciples, by their personal and prayer-filled relationship with the Father, not only will receive what they need, but also they will be filled with joy. The richest blessings of the universe the richest blessings in the universe await those who participate in God through prayer. And one of those blessings is joy. In John's gospel, in chapters 14 and 15, in fact, the other blessings are love and peace, those first three fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Here, the focus is on joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Prayer is the fruit of a relationship with God the Father. A relationship that is established by the work of God the Son. A relationship that is facilitated by the ministry of God the Spirit. When Jesus refers to to prayer in my name, he says... He's speaking of the Trinitarian nature of prayer. He's not not 
so much saying that we should tack on in Jesus' name, in, you know, in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers, though that's fine to do and it's a good reminder. He's talking about something far, far deeper than that. He's speaking of Trinitarian prayer, praying in the name of Jesus, praying, it means praying in the person and work of Jesus. It means praying united to Jesus, praying through Jesus. It means praying on the grounds of who Christ is and what he has done. It means praying on the basis of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and on the basis of the sending of his Holy Spirit to the church. The name of Jesus refers to his identity and his redemptive work from birth to Pentecost. And so one implication of this passage passage is that there's no need to pray individually to the Son or to the Spirit, though it's a a fine thing to do. Nothing wrong with it. It, But it's, my point though is it's not as if you're, they're being left out when you pray to the Father. Because when you, talk to, when you talk to the Father, you're also speaking to and through the Son. And you're speaking to and through the Spirit. You, t- you can't just, when you talk to one person of God, you're talking to all of God. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray on the basis of the access to God that Christ has provided for you through the cross, in the cross, because of the cross. It is to pray in the Spirit, as Paul puts it. Since, after all, it is the Spirit who empowers our prayers and it is the Spirit who at times even prays for us, right? In Romans 8, he prays on our behalf. So we need to be seeing prayer as a Trinitarian, Trinitarian event, Every time, no matter how you structure it necessarily or the words you say at the beginning or the end, those are important. But when you're praying to God, you're praying to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit every time. And so in light of all these wonderful truths about prayer, especially how it's related to joy, why does our flesh turn prayer into a burden rather than a privilege. Is communion and communication with God something that you look forward to, or is it just another chore, just another thing on your to-do list, maybe something that your mom has you do for school, just another homework assignment, just another thing to feel guilty about when you don't do it? I may not know about I may I may not know how much joy you have in your heart and I may not know how much time you spend in prayer but I do know this and I can tell you this the amount of joy that you have in your heart is directly proportional to the amount of time that you spend with God in prayer, in communion with him. I do know that. I think that's a universal law. Jesus ties joy with prayer here in this last verse. 
other places in Scripture do it. Your experience proves that, right? Mine does. It's a universal law and there's no workaround. There's no joy apart from communion with God. No lasting joy apart from communion with God. There's no abundance of joy apart from an abundance of communion with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises, these truths in John and John 16. We thank you for speaking them to us and we ask you to help us embrace them, to believe them, and to put them to work in our lives. We thank you for giving us resurrection joy by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.